This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Why do you think a book like this that addresses the the actual world uh, of the biblical authors is important for thinking about gender? Hmm. I think it's important because if we don't investigate this angle of the biblical text, we're liable to import our own ideas about gender into the text. And whether that's the way we experience the world today or whether that's our um, misunderstandings or assumptions about the way the world must have been in ancient times, we, we carry that with us unless we actually investigate and, and see, okay, what, where does the evidence lead us? Yeah, and you teach undergraduates as well, right? I do. Uh, so I wonder, do undergrads ever flag up concerns when you're reading through the Old Testament about fairness and gender issues? Oh my goodness, all the time. <laughs> okay. It's not just mine. All okay. the time, yeah, yeah. no. They're, when, as they're reading the biblical text, they often you know, stumble over passages that make it seem like God must not love women very much, or, you know, women are property, or women are valued less, or, oh, rape rape was okay with God? Mm. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> so, there's just lot, there's lots of gender-related questions. This is part of what makes the Bible cross-cultural, mm. is, is gender assumptions and gender norms are different. Um, so, yeah, we need to take a second look. Did uh, your experience, because you were a missionary in the Philippines, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Do you feel like in that, in some ways, that was before your biblical scholarship work, uh, mm-hmm. helped you to think about the Bible as kind of going overseas uh, to another yeah. culture? I'm sure that it helped because there are things that we just take for granted, we think is the way to do things. And then you mm-hmm. live in another culture and you realize there are very different ways of seeing this. And an example that I sometimes use in class actually relates to gender um, we arrived in the Philippines, and as we were getting to know people and sort of figuring out the dynamic, people were shocked to find out that my husband managed our finances. Really? Because in Filipino culture, the, the, the mom is the matriarch of the family. She handles the finances, and she gives her husband an allowance. Hmm. Uh, because if you gave the man all the money, presumably it would be wasted on gambling and alcohol. That was the impression I had from my from my conversation partners. And so normally the the husband gets an allowance and they just thought it was very strange that my husband managed the money and he gave me money. He would hand me cash and I would go to the market and buy our food. And they just thought that was so weird. So there's some just gendered norms. Yeah. Our house is definitely a Filipino house then because (laughs) (laughs) I have not written a check in 24 years of marriage and I praise be to my my wonderful wife who does it. But yeah, I think it's that that kind of cross-cultural experience that opens you up to your own ideas about gender. Yeah. So you wrote, without spoiling the chapter uh, that you wrote, but you wrote this very interesting, it's actually completely different than all the other chapters in the mm-hmm. book because you wrote like a little piece of historical fiction. I um, did. And so do you want to share some of what you were trying to do and some of that with us? Yes. I I was 
captivated by Wilda Gaffney's idea of the sanctified imagination Hmm. that um, I think for years I've tried to turn off my imagination when I read the Bible and just like stick to the facts. And Wilda encourages us to enter into the story and and to fill in the gaps by imagining how things might have been so that we can better identify with the story. Hmm. And I was beginning work on my commentary on Exodus for Baker Academic. And so I was in the early chapters of Exodus and I was just captivated by this story of all of these women who are participating in the rescue of Moses from death at the hands of Pharaoh. And I I began to ask questions about what do they think they're doing and how are they doing it and what gives them this idea and do they know this about each other or is there a network? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I read a book by, uh, let me get, grab her name here. I think it's Kelly Nikondeha. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but it's called Defiant, in which she imagines, you know, reimagines and sort of fills out this story. And that inspired me to do kind of an imaginative piece of my own. So hmm. do you want to share a little bit uh, of that with us? Sure. Yeah, it's it's several pages long, but I'll just pick a couple paragraphs so you can get a sense for what I was trying to do here. And this is Exodus uh, 1 and 2 you're focusing yes, on. Yes, this, yeah. this, uh, this particular part is Exodus 2 with some visitors from Exodus 1, (laughs) woven in. Hurried footsteps, cloaked in darkness, a soft knock with her small hand. Then again, more urgently, the door opens a crack. The young visitor doesn't wait for a greeting. She whispers firmly, it's time. Shifra disappears inside her home, feels for her bag, and steps outside, joining the young girl in the night air. As the two wind between mud-brick homes toward the child's groaning mother, Shifra quietly gathers the information she needs. When did the pains come? How often? Has her water broken? Shifra always works behind closed doors, with no men watching. This time she has no assistance, save this older sister, barely six years from her own birth. It is too dangerous to involve others. The fewer who know about this baby, the better. The girl now brings Shifra hot water, cold water, clean rags, whatever she needs. A midwife is an unlikely revolutionary, far from the halls of power. Her only weapons are herbs, hot compresses, and skilled hands. But this one has fire in her eyes and rebellion in her bones. I love it. Uh, that was very popular when we posted that pop that that part (laughs) of the essay online. Um, Yeah, and so I think uh, people will find. this actually just came up today because I think John Golden Gay has just yes. recently published a book of lost letters, like Lost Letters of Pergamum. Yeah, uh, Lost Letters of the Twelve Minor <clears throat> Prophets. So here yeah. we are on air, uh, but I think we need more historical fiction uh, out there. And I we think do. we should push some publishers to get more Old Testament historical fiction. Yeah, you know, there are some works out there by non-scholars, but there's right. been this trend in New Testament to do this. And I keep wondering, who's going to start writing biographies of Old Testament people or yeah. kind of filling out their stories? It would just be, there's so much rich material. I think the book, The Source, is, you know, the closest thing to a really deep, hmm. I don't know if you ever say it's like an 800 page. Uh, oh, it's fascinating. It kind of goes layer by layer through a tell all the way down to back to the Neolithic. Oh moving forward. And it's got all kinds of interesting things. And it's archaeologically sound, but it is highly speculative. But we need, uh, I think we need more because you can learn, like even that paragraph 
I'm thinking about the text and the layers of what's in the dimensions of what's going on in the text mm-hmm. just in that one paragraph more than mm-hmm. I probably thought about it, you know, the last three times mm-hmm. I read it straight mm-hmm. and cold. So Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that this one is different than all of the other essays. <laughs> I have a bit of an imposter syndrome feeling, you know, with this alongside the other essays just because it's such a different kind of project. So I guess I want people to know that I was knee-deep in research for a scholarly commentary on Exodus as I worked on this. So it flowed out of that, you know, researching midwifery and buildings and, you know, Egyptian culture and family dynamics. And so that that was all sort of seeping into my imagination. Yeah, but I think like with anybody who does something that requires a lot of skill and does it successfully, you made it look so easy, right? So <laughs> – that's that's, that's what that. good scholars do. They make it look so easy. So, hmm. well, thank you for your uh, wisdom, your guidance, and your essay here. And we look forward to reading the whole thing. Yeah. So, uh, Nijay, why do you think it's particularly important to know uh, the background of the Greco-Roman Empire and slavery and what might have been going on uh, for understanding larger discussions of gender today? Yeah, thanks, Drew. Um, you know, something I'm really interested in as as a teacher and as a writer is helping people understand, you know, the kind of real facts, what real life was like in the ancient world. Um, the Roman world in particular was pretty cosmopolitan, a very diverse world. Um, I don't think people quite understand the power dynamics, the political dynamics. We're student, starting to see more and more research on empire, politics, power. Mm-hmm. And I think we're we're getting a good grasp on what this was like. And this affects gender and sex. It affects the relationship between men and women. And so I really wanted to write on that subject. And I appreciate a book like this that gives us a really clear picture of day-to-day real life between men and women in the ancient world. Yeah, it is difficult to imagine the power and the politics. And even we talk about the honor-shame society uh, that you talk about even in your chapter. Um I guess are we I feel like as Christians who are reading the biblical text we're constantly importing our general sense of American fairness and equality and we we think that that's basically okay that's how everybody thinks and now Paul seems really mean in light of those uh views of fairness how do you help students kind of get into that world quickly Yeah well you know it's helpful to realize you know much like with the prophets a lot of Paul's letters are reactionary he's reacting mm. against a problem i have this little story i tell when i lived in this apartment building and i had you know a a a toddler and as i was taking my daughter to uh, uh, kindergarten and back there were some people who'd sit in this park and watch me drag my son my my toddler <laughs> up this hill to the apartment and i'd be yelling I know where this time. is going <laughs> <laughs> and if you only saw me in those snapshots of life, you'd think I was a really angry, horrible person. But it was really just those moments that the that those and so we're just seeing these moments of Paul where he's reacting. But then you have letters like Philippians that are very warm-hearted, gracious. Mm-hmm. Ephesians in many ways is like that. Uh, First Thessalonians in many ways is like that. And so sometimes it sticks in our mind that Paul can say, "I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to have to bring a rod when I come to you," you know. Right. Um, but at the same time, I mean, a pastor, a shepherd of the sheep. Um, sometimes uses the hook, sometimes uses the crook. And so, um, you know, in my essay, I actually talk about there are very clear moments where Paul is turning things upside down and saying, hey, we need to question uh, the powers that be, the way things are in society and start to think differently as Christians. So without spoiling your very readable chapter uh, that you gave for the book, um, 
the the hook of the of the chapter is basically, hey, why didn't Jesus or Paul or Peter or James or John or any of these people of all the things they talked about, why didn't they just say, hey, you can't have sex with your slaves? Uh, that was a common expectation for a lot of people. Um, so, what's your short answer, I guess, to that? Well, my my short answer is, you know, I think we need to be honest that they don't. The early Christian writers don't say all the things we want them to say, uh, mm-hmm. and and I wish. I wish they said more. And the church did write things like the Didache and things later on where they try to say more and be more specific about uh, certain things. But for example, there's a common practice of infant exposure where you put out a child that you don't mm. want on this hill and it might die from the elements or get taken to slavery. Often that was uh, girls that were put out. And uh, the New Testament doesn't speak to this directly, but early Christianity just a bit later does. Um, but what I say in my chapter is um, I think that uh, – there are the seeds that are sown of how Christians should think about uh, humanity, what I call a Christian social anthropology. But I, I also want to make it clear, um, early Christians were not perfect. I don't know if you've seen this, mm. Drew, but there was a clip from John MacArthur from, that's circulating from 2012 where he basically tried to say slavery isn't that bad, especially the slavery mm. of the Roman Empire. And mm. I think that's a Christian apologetic of saying, oh, the Christians didn't call out these bad things because it, it actually wasn't so bad. It was basically like employment, you get a place to stay, you get food, you get clothes on your on your back. And I think Roman historians have said, no, actually, it's really, really bad. Anytime you treat someone yeah. as a piece of property, you're going to abuse it. You're going to mistreat it. Were there some people that love their slaves, treat them well? Maybe, yeah. But a good number of people are going to treat their slaves poorly. We have to just accept that reality. And we have to say, sometimes Christians probably gave in to cultural norms and just accepted that. But I also want to say, sometimes maybe Christians didn't. This is why Christianity became the religion of the poor, the low class of women and slaves. This is, this is the religion that we know historically did go pick up those children that were cast out for slavery or for death. Uh, and so we might expect the same of many of them. And if the letter, letter to the Corinthians is of any indicator, certainly the church was bringing all of these same sexual expectations into the community, uh, which have to be teased out as well. Um, this broader, you know, what your chapter does um, methodologically, so if we can step back and look at what you're doing, is you're essentially saying there is a matrix of teaching that when you hear the gospels, when you hear out Paul, what he's saying, when you hear out uh, all the epistles, like it just wouldn't make sense for you to do certain things. It just wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't fall into that wisdom category. Um, are there any other examples? Because I like the the infant exposure one is a great one because it's such a radical, visceral image of an early Roman practice. Um, that's not talked about in scripture, but clearly uh, we know what's going on. Are there any other things like that where you just say, look, scripture doesn't directly deal with this, but it's obviously shaping and crafting the early Christian communities? I mean, you know, I, I think an example would be care for the poor. Now, that this is mm-hmm. a little bit more explicitly said in the New Testament in a variety of places. For example, in Galatians, where the, you know, the Jerusalem apostles say to Paul, you know, we have one condition that you care for the poor. Um, but there's a great book by Bruce Longenecker called Remember the Poor, where he gets mm, into yeah. the whole idea that because of how the early Christians and Jews thought about God, God's world, God's people, um, you know, even places like St. Corinthians, where Paul's using 
the the manna feeding as uh, a, a kind of theological system of welfare. Um, this is pretty close to uh, an idea that no one should have too much, no one should have too little, everyone mm-hmm. should have enough. I mean, we, you know, we're capitalists today. We don't like this idea, but um, this is where Paul had already sowed the seeds of saying, "Hey, we need to be taking care of each other economically." Um, do you think? Uh, one last question. Um, Coming back to the topic of the church, what does gender have to do with it in the biblical world? Do you see the early church, if you just come through the lens of scripture and kind of the Roman Empire, um, do you see them kind of lining everybody up on the wall and saying, girl, boy, girl, girl, boy, boy, okay, you guys over there, you do this stuff, you you girls over there, you do this stuff? Or how do you see them playing out roles of gender? Because we, we think of them very differently today, I guess, in American society. <sighs> Yeah. Um, how many hours do we have for that? I think there is, is some sense of boxes that people are put in, and it seems like the early Christian writers were acknowledging that. They were tipping their hat to that. So there's ideas of manliness and womanliness that are at play in the ancient world, and that the early Christians don't completely reject or deny that. Um, the idea of like the man protects the fam- the man of the house. I think the default settings are kind of left in place hmm. by the early Christians. That doesn't tell us whether they wanted it that way. That just tells us that they left it that way. At the same time, we start we do see glimpses of um, uh, 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 of of not acknowledging that sometimes, not allowing that to take place. So, for example, you know, a quick example would be Paul sending Phoebe. To deliver a letter to the Romans, he's, let's say, in Corinth, uh, which is a major city. He knows lots of people in Corinth. He knows lots of leaders, Stephanus, Gaius. He knows a ton of people. He's baptized some of them, so he's very close to them. Mm. He chooses Phoebe. Why? Oh, she's already going to go there. Okay, you could send someone else with her. So the fact he's sending what we think of as a single woman, wealthier, upper-class Christian, diakonos, to this city, uh, you know, the, the imperial city, and getting into who knows what's going to happen when she delivers this letter that has some pretty juicy things in it. Um, I think that is part of Paul's strategy of saying um, what's most important is she's capable and mm. and things weren't always looked at that way in the Roman world. So the, I think Paul was sometimes trying to make those kinds of things apparent. Yeah. Dr. Nijay Gupta, thank you very much for your contribu- contribution to this book and your help uh, with us thinking through these topics. Absolutely. Why is household archaeology so important for thinking about the topic of gender? Yeah, it really is quite important. And the more I do of it, the more I realize its importance. You know, if we think about the Hebrew Bible, really, um, its authors and editors were, of course, motivated by certain factors and certain reasons for writing and and what they chose to include and what they chose to exclude. And of course, we can't ever fully know what those reasons are, but biblical scholars, we try our best. But archaeology um, allows us to get a different perspective. So the biblical text, of course, has um, they've got things in there that they wanted to include and exclude things. But so their motivation for writing is is going to be, you know, it's it's there. Whereas the archaeological record, it's just what was left behind, right? right? There's no motivation. Oh, I'm going to purposely mm. leave this here so people thousands of years later can find it. Um, 
So we kind of get a, a more nuanced picture. We get, especially if you're interested in daily life as I am, the cultural context of ancient Israel, um, then you really want to have a, a perspective that's on the ground, that's more tangible, that was not um, chosen by a select group of people. And those, you know, the people who are responsible for the biblical text, which I think we could safely say were, you know, your elite urban males, your educated elite urban males. Whereas, um, you know, archaeology is just what's left behind. Yeah. So I think if we want to have a bigger, broader, um, maybe, dare I say, more accurate picture of daily life, then archaeology is really important, in particular household archaeology, because that's the stage where daily life occurred. Yeah, that's a really good point is that people aren't, aren't although I might start doing this, leaving things around my house just in case somebody <laughs> finds it a thousand years from now. But there is archaeology that does explore exactly what people left intended to be found thousands of years from now. So monumental uh, archaeology, monumental, right? Yeah. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so people who were intentionally trying to communicate uh, through the ages in various ways. Um, and it seems to me that there's probably not just a matter of like, what do we include and exclude from the biblical text even, but there's also just a matter of what do we just assume people know what we're talking about. I mean, mm-hmm. It seems like that's where your work has come in particularly handy. Kind of like if we said cheer, if I just said the term cheerleader, well, if you're a modern, modern American, sorry, that's the only one that came to mind. But if you're a modern <laughs> American, you're going to typically think female, although there are male cheerleaders. You're going to think of certain outfits. You're going to cert- think of like certain associations with schools, teams, sports, etc. Ages, a, mm-hmm. a, a certain, yeah, definitely certain ages, because you should stop doing that at some point in your life. Um, <laughs> so, what has household? You know, if you could think of some top top three, uh, what has household archaeology contributed to those uh, assumptions that the biblical authors seem to be making? Right. Well, and I think it's assumptions that we as the readers make too. Oh, yes. You know, bec- yeah, because we assume that things were, maybe we don't know we're doing this. Maybe it's more subconscious where we kind of subconsciously assume things were are kind of static, mm-hmm. that the way my house looks and functions because that's a big factor is how does a house actually function and how was the way it laid out? How did it function best for your ancient Israelite family? Hmm. So when I tell people the basic, the basic kind of blueprint of a house, um, which we see, you know, it's very basic, you know, some people say four rooms, but there were also three rooms were very popular too, but that, a house was not, um, it wasn't just a place to live. It was also a place where you, you worked. And I think we today forget, you know, that people left to didn't leave to go work, you know, that people worked from home and maybe after the shutdown and COVID and people working from home where maybe that's helped us understand that a bit better, but that your ancient Israelite house you know, it was multifunctional, that people, everyone was doing everything. And that the way I think about it, and some would disagree with this, but I, I don't think your average Israelite would have had that luxury of, of sex roles, mm-hmm. um, your roles or, or gender roles, depending on which terminology you like to use. But um, 
which roles that men can do and women can do. And, and certainly there was some of that. I don't want to say that they were egalitarian mm-hmm. and everything was hunky-dory and shared and everything. But I do think uh, we tend to um, we tend to assume that women had no power. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's the case. I think, and and others have argued that more eloquently than myself, including, you know, Carol, who's also in the volume, um, that women, especially at a household level, uh, had more authority and power, in particular, probably the matriarch of the household, um, probably had more authority and power than we like to give them credit for. And the thing about the biblical text is that you know, they're not writing about everyday life. Their motivation and reason for writing is to cover that monumental aspect, Mm -hmm. the priests, the kings, the judges, the battlefields, the palace, the temple, et cetera. And that's not the stage really where daily life occurred. And so it's not, I don't think it's that they were intentionally saying that that stuff doesn't matter, but that just wasn't their motivation for writing. It does sometimes sneak in there mm-hmm. uh, when it meets suits their purposes. <laughs> but um, I think there's a lot we and they probably they just kind of ignored or neglected. You know, I don't think out of spite or anything, but just oh, that's not the point. We don't need all these recipes. We don't mm-hmm. need, you know, to talk about the layout of the house. We also we just love simple stories about the past too. The bait of the, the house of the father, he's in charge. Everybody just does what he says. Same thing with the kings. You know, many times yeah. my students imagine the kings just speak and everybody bows down and says, "Okay," you know. Um, <laughs> and it's really always more complicated than that. And you used the term, I think, once heterarchy um, and, mm. uh, and uh, that idea that we want to think of hierarchy of just that strict linear. It all rolls downhill like it's all running like the military. Uh, so what do you mean by that fancy word heterarchy that probably nobody has ever heard of before? Yeah. <laughs> I, it, I like it. You know, but, yeah. I like it too. And, you know, others have written more eloquently on it than I have, but um, it really just kind of understands or is okay with the fluidity of, of social structures mm-hmm. that nothing is you know, cut and dry. It's not black and white. You know, there's some, depending on the life cycle of the members of the household, depending on the life cycle of the household itself, you know, this agricultural cycle, who's doing, who's doing what, and who has the skills to do this and who has the skills to do that, that maybe, you know, females were more in, uh, more in control over the food preparation because they were, home more because not because that's where they were supposed to be, but because as part of their reproductive role, that's a really important focus. Um, You know, you're not going to go plowing a field when you're eight months pregnant, unless you absolutely have Mm -hmm. to. So I think heterarchy is one of these um, social science terms that, that really recognizes you know, that the fluidity of different households and, and that that household can change too, depending on the needs and desires of that particular household. Yeah. 
I think what you do in this book, along with Carol Myers and Jeffrey Garcia and Lynn Kohick and others, is you just develop our imaginations a bit more. Like, what was it actually mm-hmm. like? What were the possibilities? And, and and honestly, it feels much closer to the way we think of relationships in a household as well and how the realities that we experience as well. I would agree with that. Yeah, I would. Well, Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott, thank you so much for your time. And I hope everybody picks up this volume so they can read what you what you so ineloquently said in the book. I'm just, <laughs> just joking. Thanks, Drew. I'm happy to be here. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.